hope that you will enjoy it. This is the twenty-something swinging disc, and this is the last thing on your Christmas list. But this is the only gift that I have got to give. I hope that. Will enjoy it. It doesn't begin to justify the time it took. I'm not even sure it's worthy of a second look. I wanted to make the masterpiece you waited for, but maybe I just can't do it anymore. This is a certain lack of confidence And this is the uncontested evidence And this is my final chance to prove myself to you And I hope that you will enjoy it
Hello and welcome to the Strange Room Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the Bevis from Enjoy from Where Your Friends. And we have founder member Nick Salomon here. Uh, welcome, Nick. Yeah, hi there. First of all, uh, one of the reasons we're here is just to, to mention one of your the live shows that you've got coming up, which is the uh, Fruits de Mer Aldea, the 17th Dream of Dr. Sardonicus uh, uh, Cardigan, Wales. Uh, have, have you got many shows lined up with the Frond at the minute? We've got a few, yeah. I, would, I wouldn't say we're kind of inundated with live bookings, but we're, we're playing um, May the 18th, we're playing in Liverpool, May the 25th in London, June the 1st, we're in Barcelona. June the 8th, we're in Wiltshire. Then we've got July off. We're doing the uh, Cardigan one at the beginning of August. Following weekend, we're at a festival in Belgium. And there's a few things possibly happening in September, but they haven't been set up yet. You know, we're, we're waiting to see what happens there. There's um, a festival in Berlin in October. So, yeah, you know, there's, there's stuff going on. I feel like I've forgotten something, but but I can't remember what it is. Well, I, I wouldn't have forgotten it if I could remember it, would I? <laughs> and you've chosen uh, five of your own tracks and five of, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, favourite tracks of yours. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, Well, I mean, I, yeah, you kind of, I think that was the kind of brief, really. And I had, mm. it's always difficult to kind of choose five out of the kind of great pantheon of songs. Not my own stuff, I mean, the general mm. stuff, you know, but... But yeah, you kind of think, oh, wait a minute, I've left that out, you know, but yeah, I, I did my best. <laughs> and the first uh, two are uh, uh, Bevis Frond tracks, and I just mentioned uh, Enjoy. So what was it uh, about Enjoy that led you to, to picking that song in particular? Well, I, th- I thought it kind of, well, hey, I mean, I'm quite happy with the way it came out. And it's off the the album that was released in December, last December. It was called We're Your Friends, Man. And... Um, I, th- I thought it was a kind of, I was quite pleased with the kind of lyrical content. I mean, I like the music as well, you know, it's a kind of nice kind of twin guitar workout at the end. And But the lyrics were kind of, you know, about, I, I guess every time you put out an album, you kind of, you know, although, you know, I am I'm quite a kind of confident person. You know, I'm, I don't doubt my own ability and all that, which doesn't mm-hmm. sound very humble, but I'm, you know, I'm, I also recognise that I'm not very high up the scale in the greater scheme of things, but you know, it's it's fine and all that. But every time I put a, an album out, I always have this kind of nagging doubt that it will be the one that people go, oh, right, rubbish, <laughs> that's a, he's, he's finished, you know, that's garbage, you know, and I'm kind of thinking, oh God, is, it, is this is this going to be the one where they all turn around and tell me I'm rubbish? And yeah, so far, touch wood, it hasn't happened, you know. You know, that was really what that's about. You know, you kind of just have a bit of doubt when you, especially if you, this one actually came out on Fire Records, I, uh, but up until then, I've pretty much paid for almost all the albums that I've done myself, you know, Vanity Publishing and all that stuff. And so it's even more worrying because you're always thinking, God almighty, I've just laid out X amount of money and I might lose it. I mean, not that I feel less concerned because it's not on my label, you know, it's mm. it's on fire and I don't want them to lose money as well. I mean, that would be really embarrassing, you know. So, yeah, it's just about, you know, your kind of trepidation when you put out a record. But people have kept uh, buying the records for, records for over 30 years now. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it's the same people. I think some some have stuck with me for all the way through. But yeah, you know, hopefully, you know, you, I've picked up a few people along the way. I get so a few people have dropped off as well. But yeah, I've been I've been selling a kind of small amount every you know for thirty years. I don't. I, it, 
I don't think I'd bother the mm. hit parade. You know, I mean, it's better than not selling any, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And of the uh, opening pair of material, uh, we have Johnny Quango from the Leaving of London album from 2011 now. That's right, yeah. Well, I just I just thought that was a nice song, you know, I just... Just kind of happy with that one. I'd had a, I'd had a quite a long layoff between albums. I, I did an album in two thousand and four, and then I kind of, I remember coming back from a tour in about two thousand and four, and thinking I've had enough of this. I was getting bored with it, and you know, I felt I was, you know, the stuff I was writing was was just the same old stuff that I did all the time, and I'm, I thought, oh, you know what, I need a break from this. I didn't realise it was going to last seven years, but it it did, and so when I put out the the new album, I had quite a nice little batch of material because I'd had seven years to get it together. And uh, I, I opened the album with Johnny Quango because I kind of thought it was a really nice song. I was, you know, really pleased with the way that came out. You know, nice lyrics, good tune, you know. So, yeah, I was I was happy with that. And, you know, I must say that I'm not always happy with what I do. So only a kind of very small proportion of what I write actually gets put onto vinyl. Most of it gets screwed up in a ball and thrown in the dustbin, you know. And something that that was quite popular in the the 60s and 70s, certainly here in the UK, was songs with people's names or or characters? Or or was was that something (laughs) that mindful with with that particular No, it wasn't. It was about Johnny Quango, who was a a wrestler in the 60s. I don't know how old you are, but I'm an ancient (laughs) kind of relic at the moment. You know, I'm now 66 and... I remember as a kid, you know, watching wrestling on TV on a Saturday before the football results came on. And uh, Johnny Quango was Ah. often featured and he was a kind of, you know, star wrestler, I think, in the the 60s. And he, he, you know, I I was using him as a kind of metaphor for kind of, you know, not giving up and keeping on going and fighting your way against, you know, kind of obstacles and stuff. So it was it was more to do with. You know, he, I was actually using mm. him as a kind of, you know, a kind of idea of this guy who just kind of has to fight his way through everything to get anywhere. You know, so was, that, was it that sort of that ITV World of Sport type thing? That's right. Yeah, it's Kent Walton, or was it Kenneth Walton? I can't remember. <laughs> it was, I think it was Kent Walton yeah. introduced the wrestling, but I'm not sure. Can't remember. Everyone has a favourite tune. Is this yours?
The track uh, "The Flies," I'm not your stepping stone. Many people will be these days will be familiar f- from it for its appearance on the uh, Chop Chocolate Soup for Diabetics compilation. Was that that way you heard it, or did you actually? No, have... I bought it when it came out. I... <laughs> <laughs> That's very impressive. <laughs> you see, this, this is what happens when you're an old git. You know, I wouldn't. There's not much to recommend getting old. I have to say, yeah. but. You did see a lot of good bands when you were young. It meant, you know, it means I've seen some great bands, and it means I was able to buy records that disappeared very quickly because if you were into it, you know, they were there. So yeah, I bought um, I'm Not Your Stepping Stone in a shop called National Radio in St John's Wood High Street when I was 13, 
because I'd heard it on the radio and thought it was brilliant. And I still do. You know, it's an absolute mm. killer. You know, it's a, it's what now has become known as a British freak beat, I suppose, yeah. but which is basically British beat finding a bit of kind of fuzz and anger and psychedelia all coming together. Very short-lived little, you know, 66 really is is the age of freak beat, 65 maybe into 66. Mm. By 67, it was all psychedelic and Auntie Mary's cake shop and all that. But um, for a little period, it was this kind of aggressive kind of fuzz boxes with a and it's a period that I really love and uh, I think it's a kind of key track from that period yeah so there you go it certainly is did you hit on any others that um what now would be rarer or sought after singles or acts but in that period yeah yeah sure yeah I was well you know I mean you don't you're not thinking of them you're just kind of if you're if you're a kind of kid in the mid-60s and you were into that kind of stuff which I was you know, you you listen to, you know, radio and you listen to yeah, your friends had records and often, you know, your mate's older brothers had stuff because they were 16 and you were 13 and, and you listen to stuff. And if you liked it, you know, you go, oh, that's good. You weren't thinking of it in terms of kind of rarity or no. that it was scarce or unusual. It was just what you heard that you went, oh, you know, so... You know, I'd buy singles by, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and the Who, yeah. you know, which, of course, sold millions. But then I bought things like, you know, John's Children and you know, other things like that, you know, the the Flies and yeah. Lucky, you know, just lucky that I like the stuff that's become really sought after. But there again, that applies to, you know, Rare Soul or if you're buying kind of rare reggae in the late 60s, you know, it's, it wasn't rare then, it was it's just what you like. I was just into that kind of stuff and into the psych stuff when it came out. So, you know, I was buying things like the Tomorrow album and Blossom Toes and Writing on the Wall and all those albums mm-hmm. because I'd go down to the marquee and see them. And, you know, I, I was I was about, you know, 15, 16, and every band you saw, you'd just go, oh, brilliant. And you'd go out and buy their album because you thought everything <laughs> with a guitar, loud, loud guitar and people with long hair was brilliant. I, mean, I still do, actually. Yeah, I mean uh, the range and depth of of bands in in that sort of mid mid to late sixties period seems endless. And even now, digging up acetates and and things like that, there's still great music being unearthed. There is, yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's you know. I mean, there was a it was a very kind of fruitful period. You know, where there's lots of people were having ideas, and there was a lot of kind of it was all kind of new. And people, you know, it didn't seem like you look back now and think it's a bit contrived, but it wasn't. It was just loads of people just mm. trying things out and getting new sounds and kind of experimenting. And I think, you know, it was a lot more open back then. You know, I mean, if, pretty much any band of half decent would get a kind of some kind of recording deal. You know, there weren't many that, well, there probably were, but, but you know, it seems there was a, it was like a bit in the punk era, you know, that if you, if you had a band and called yourself the kind of snot faces, you'd get a, record deal you know it was a similar kind of feeling it was like really exciting and open and I always felt I was just a bit too young you know I always felt god if only I'd been 17 instead of 40 you know I'd be in a band and I'd be touring the world so it didn't happen until I was old
talking about the 60s and and one of my uh, favorite bands of, of that period is uh, time box and uh, yeah. you you've chosen um pato which is kind of um... well it's time box without chris Holmes, yeah. isn't it you know yeah well of course i could have chosen gone is the sad man because that is another of the yeah. key records from that time what an absolute, absolute masterpiece yeah. you know mm. but i remember yeah pato i just i remember going to the the marquee and if I've got my memory right, you know, I went to it. I went used to go out like all the time to the Marquee and the Roundhouse and places like that because I was very lucky to live in kind of pretty central London. You could walk down to the West End and I could walk to the Roundhouse and it was on your doorstep really. And and I was into all that. And if my memory serves me, and it probably doesn't, I think I went to see Nucleus at the Marquee, and they were supported by Pato, who who had I, I'd actually seen as Timebox and didn't realise that Pato was Timebox. And they came on as a support band. They were supporting Nucleus, and they just blew me completely away. I remember seeing Ollie Halsall playing guitar and thinking, Jesus Christ, he's the best guitarist I've ever seen in my life. And I'm kind of in in about 10 seconds, I was a massive Pato fan, you know. So, yeah, they've been a real important band to me for ages. You know, they only did, what, three albums that were released and then one that remained in the can you know but Mm. um, they were just and they were way better live than they were on record and by 1972 and and their track 
loud green song as, as you know all bands had done uh, had done in that period they'd they'd shifted their sound on you know harder in in some ways oh, was it, i don't i don't think loud green song is a particularly kind of characteristic pato song no. i think it was the uh, it comes off their third album which you know i find the least kind of interesting of the three that that got came out the two vertigo albums i think are infinitely superior because i think i think what they did on the third album i'm I'm getting a bit too detailed here but live they were what they were known as a kind of looning band they'd kind of mess about on stage and and stuff that works live on stage and it's a bit wacky you know and it works on stage as a live thing often doesn't translate when you put it out on vinyl because it's a bit you know what they're doing and I think that they were trying to capture the kind of live atmosphere on that album and it it didn't really hit it for me but Loud Green Song was this kind of raucous track at the end of side one that sounded you know like a precursor to punk almost but with the kind of ridiculous guitar playing on it but the kind of really kind of real rough edges and it it just wow you know it's just a a great track which I've, I've always said that if I have any choice in the matter, we'll get played at my funeral. Because then everyone's going to have to sit there and listen to it.
And next we have the Bevis from the She's in Love With Time. Now, was that from your debut album? It was, yeah. I, I put that on because it's like pretty much the first song that ever came out under the Bevis Run title. There was a there was a kind of intro called Garden Gate with just kind of like a minute long kind of instrumental thing. And with my daughter as a little baby kind of girl, when she would have been about three or four talking on it. And then it went into She's In Love With Time, which was the first proper song on a Bevis Rond album. So I thought that had a kind of bit of significance. <laughs> I'm getting a bit up myself, but yeah. And in those days, it was just, um, was it like a, a four-track? Four-track Tascam Porter One uh, on a cassette in my, my spare bedroom upstairs. With, with Yeah, it, it was... It was kind of, um, it wasn't really seen as a, I didn't do it as a as a concept to make an album. I mean, what, what I was doing, I'd have, I'd played in bands for a long time and got absolutely nowhere. You know, we'd done pubs and clubs around London, lots of support gigs, seen record companies, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and there was never any interest at all. You know, well, they, they kind of were interested enough to ask you to come and see them. And then when you went to go to, say, Island Records, you'd get there and say, oh, we've got an appointment with, you know, Hiram J. Blackbag and he wants to see us. And they'd say, oh, he's not here. Or keep you waiting for two hours and then he wouldn't see you, you know. And for some reason, record companies seem to delight in treating you like dog's mark, you know. And I kind of was a bit fed up with it. And I I got to about 30 and I thought, oh, well, this is never going to happen, you know. And... Um, I'd, I'd kind of had a motorbike accident and got some compensation and I put some money into buying some equipment. I bought a second-hand drum kit and a bass and a Porter One and various stuff and I'd started recording stuff at home just with the idea really of recording a load of tracks and just getting down what was in my head because when you're in a band, you know, it's a kind of democratic thing and you don't always do exactly what you want yourself and I thought I'm going to just do a load of tracks mm. the way I want to do them and... I did, um, and then I thought, yeah, I'll do press the best of this up onto an album because it'd be nice to have something, you know, tangible. That, yeah, this is what Grandpa did, and my grandchild would go, oh, thank you very much, and throw it out the window. But, but that was the idea, really. Mm. So you didn't go down the cleaners from Venus route of of just uh, selling tapes. You actually, it was vinyl that you that you made. I, I mean, I recorded it on cassette. Mm. That was. How, what form it was on but then I wanted to have I mean this is at 1986 or something CDs hadn't really happened there wasn't really any other format really uh, apart from cassette which I never liked and I thought I've always been a bit into vinyl I like my vinyl and I thought yeah I'll pay pressed up 250 originally of my asthma my mate designed the cover and I just thought right I've done my album that's done at least it shows what I was about you know I'd have something to as a kind of you know, record of what I'd done, you know. So basically that was the, the birth of your musical career as we know it. <laughs> My biggest yeah. career, yeah. I guess it was, yeah. I, you know, I'd, I'd never thought anyone would be interested. I genuinely thought, it, you know, I'd, I'd press up 250, I'd give 50 away to people I knew and 200 would stay in the attic forever, you know, and that would be it, you know. And at the time, I'd, I was even doing things like auditioning for bands, you know, to see whether I'd get into a band playing a bit of guitar for someone and... But, you know, this would be in the 80s. I was already in my 30s, you know. Punk had happened. Suddenly, if you played lead guitar, you were in a boring old fart. And, you know, I kind of thought, well, yeah, it's, it's never going to happen. You know, it's like my football career. I'm never going to play football for anyone, likewise. But, you know, just one of those 
flukes, you know, it, it kind of, it, you know, I suppose the message is that when you stop trying to get record deals and do what you think people would like and you just do what you want to do, then people start going, oh, that's good. I don't know, just, just fluke and good fortune, you know. Look at her preoccupation 
Moving to um, another song that you've chosen, uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience, May This Be Love. You were talking about cornerstones in music, not only for yourself, but kind of to everyone who's kind of in, into that period. Uh, Jimi Hendrix is, is there. What was it about May This Be Love? Well, the, the reason I chose that one, I always, I always really liked it. But I mean, it, I think it showed a bit of a different side of Hendrix, you know, that he's well known for his kind of, you know, feedback and setting fire to his... Mm guitars and all that kind of stuff you know that you know they always kind of go on about that but he was also a really kind of tasteful lyrical guitarist and the the playing on may this be love is really pretty and it's got lovely little phrasing and i thought yeah that's a really nice one to put on because it's it's like a really pretty little track and i mean normally if you were looking for that side of hendrix people would go for little wing I mean, it's a brilliant track, but everyone likes that one. I thought, may this be love. Always was fond of that. And it's off Are You Experienced, which, of course, was the first Hendrix album. And I remember seeing Hendrix on Ready, Steady, Go. You know, I'd never even heard of him. You know, he came came over to England and then he appeared on Ready, Steady, Go and did Hey Joe and Stone Free. He was my favourite guitarist of all time. By the time he kind of walked on stage and gone, he's brilliant. You know, a bit like Ollie Halsall, really. They're my two favourite guitarists of all time. I mean, for me, the, the sound that he established on May This Be Love was something that he continued to develop with uh, Electric Ladyland. Yeah, yeah, with things like, you know, on 1983 and stuff, there's some really pretty guitar on that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, he was just, what can I say? He was just, I think the word genius is overused in pop music. I think they call people a genius who are nothing like a genius. They're, they're good, but they're not geniuses. I think there's probably only, like, you know, two or three geniuses in pop music and I would say that Hendrix was one of them. Waterfall No 
nothing can harm me at all My worries seem so very small But my waterfall I can see my rainbow Some people say daydream is for all the lazy-minded fools with nothing else to do. So let them laugh, laugh at me. So just as long as I have you to see me through, I have nothing to lose. Long as I have you. Now for our next track, it's said that the uh, the guitarist from this band, Greg Sage, was inspired by Hendrix uh, to pick up the guitar, as uh, a fair fair number of yeah. musicians were. And it's the uh, Wipers oh, when it's over. Well, the Wipers kind of pretty much opened my eyes to you know huge influence on what I was doing. Really, although I tried not to copy them, but I think I think what it was was that. I was ter- turned on to playing the guitar by the shadows. You know, when I was a kid, I loved the shadows. and I wanted to be Hank Marvin and then the Beatles. I wanted to be, you know, a Beatle. And then I wanted to be in the who or the, the stones or, you know, the kinks or something. And, but then Hendrix was the one that really made me go for oh, that. That's what I want to do. And, and I suppose Clapton, when he was in cream, I just loved all the good guitarists, you know, like, you know, I used to go and see Rory Gallagher and, Alvin Lee and 10 years after and, you know, Barry Moulton of Country Joe and the Fish and all, all the guitarists were, I just, that's what I wanted to do, you know? And by 77, you know, when punk came out and suddenly I was a boring old fart overnight, you know, you know, I was like 23, 24 and thinking I was quite a cool dude. 
And then suddenly I wasn't, you know, in a, in a matter of a kind of day or two, you know, having long hair and being able to play guitar, you were suddenly considered to be an old git, you know? And it was something that I never quite could get my head around that kind of thing where a lot of people who were good guitarists and suddenly cut all their hair off and pretended they couldn't play guitar or, you know, you you had to be a kind of angry, short haired, confrontational person who wasn't very good at your instrument, you know, and it was like, a, oh, what, you know, OK, I, could, I know fashion rules and, you know, if everyone's got short hair, well, then you get your hair cut short. And if you're, everyone's angry, well, then you're angry, too. But this this idea that you you kind of learned for years how to play your instrument and then suddenly you had to pretend you couldn't play, you know, I thought, well, that's just stupid, you know. And so, you know, when I was playing in bands in the late 70s, 80s, it, we had a kind of punk element, but I also used to do guitar solos because I thought I can't not do a guitar solo because it's in, in me, you know. And then I, but then I knew we weren't going to get anywhere really because we were too <laughs> old, too old at 25, you know, or whatever. And uh, then I heard Greg Sage, you know, then I heard the Wipers and I thought, bloody hell, I was right you can be punky and play guitar solos and do long tracks with feedback. It's all right. I'm, I've been, you know, vindicated and Greg Sage kind of really opened my eyes to that with the wipers, you know, and I've got youth of America and listened to it and thought fantastic, you know, and it really made me kind of think, yeah, wait, maybe I've got a chance, you know, to do what I want to do without having to compromise and do some bloody awful white reggae or something to be trendy you know so there you go sorry have you gone to sleep no no (laughs) there's a few artists um from that earlier period who kind of um jumped on the bandwagon might be harsh in 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 some ways but kind of shifted their sounds you know you've got kind of radio stars and even the sort of stranglers to a certain extent that kind of shifted onto that yeah definitely you know elvis costello captain sensible that guy's a fantastic guitarist, but he doesn't really do it. And it's not until Machine Gun Etiquette, third album, that he's actually even playing guitar. Mm. And strangely enough, you know, we're in 2019 now, and it's still considered to be like, oh, long guitar solos, really boring, you know. And you go, oh, shut up. <laughs> you know, move on, man, you know, because it's no more boring than being angry with spiky hair when you're 60, is it? That's pretty boring as well, you know, if you're going to talk in terms of boring, which I never do because I like music. And if it's boring, it's because it's the music's boring, not because of what it is, you know, what you're doing.
And now we go to, um, for about 20 years ago, in the Bevis from the Portobello Man. And uh, so this is a period where you kind of, it, it was a bit less at home with a, as opposed to at home with a four track on your own. You actually had a, a band by then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. By that time, I had, I'd got a band. Well, you know, when it, when it started off, I, it, it, was, it was born out of necessity. I, I didn't have enough money to go in the studio. I'd spent all my money that I got from my motor, motorcycle compensation, motorcycle compensation. I couldn't afford to go into a studio. And, and besides, I wasn't thinking in, in, in terms of putting albums out. I was just recording stuff at home. And then when the first one worked, I thought, oh, this is good. And I did another one and that worked. And then eventually I started getting people saying, do you want to come on tour and do gigs and stuff? And I, so I put a band together and we started going out on tour. And of course, once you've got a band together and you're all playing together, you can hardly, well, I, even though I did occasionally, you know, I'll tell them that they can't be on the records because I'm doing it on my own. But I did do a few records on my own. But then, yeah, you you know, you, you get put, you go in the studio because you get better results, obviously, you know. Uh, you know, it's much easier to work in a studio than it is to work on a four-track porter studio. I mean, I did go up to an eight track, I must say, you know, but, but which I still use for my home demos. But yeah, I, I've been going into a studio really to do my albums for 25 years, you know, or maybe longer even. So yeah, by, by the time of Portobello Man, I was working in a studio with Adrian Shaw on bass and Andy Ward on drums. And that track in particular is, um, is, a, is a fan favourite these days. It's uh, kind of stood the test of time. Well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a fan, am I? <laughs> I, I don't know I, I like it I suppose you know that's what counts really you know I mean I thought I thought again I thought that was a that that had an interesting kind of viewpoint that the the idea with that is that you know that you kind of dig up you know like they dig up a kind of relic in some field or other from 2000 years ago and there's often a bit of discussion there you know oh yes well this was part of a gateway and they draw a di- on television they'll have a kind of drawing of what the gate would have look like from a kind of fragment of stone and you kind of think really how do they know that you know it looked to me it looks like a bit of stone you know and then i was thinking well if you applied that to the kind of much maligned freak of the late 60s you know the old hippie guy working away with his fanzine in notting hill or something and i thought yeah you know that in years to come they'll find a magazine you know you know like an international times and a kaftan and try and put it together and They'll say, oh, yes, well, they used to wear this as a kilt and this magazine was, you know, and they think, well, they haven't got a clue what it's about, really. And so I was trying to use that kind of historical working out what things were in the lyric year, you know, that you find the bones of him and you reconstruct Portobello Man and he, you know, like the Neanderthal Man, you know, and your vision of what Neanderthal Man looks like is like half ape-like creature grunting and hitting things over the head with a bone but you don't know, do you? No. He might have been wearing a top hat and a monocle for all we know. <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> Future histories will tell us quite enough Of maps and wars and all that scientific stuff but what of this bearded angel few can understand And for now let's call him Portobello Man Distinctly different 
have now uh, David Ackles waiting for the moving van and a bit of a pedigree on this one in that the producer for this track was Bernie Tarpin and understand the conductor was the uh, amazing Robert Kirby on, on this song. Well, I mean, I absolutely love David Ackles, you know, because I think he was the guy in the late 60s when I was a kind of started off playing in bands when I was about 15 mm-hmm. and I was writing songs and stuff, but all my songs were just kind of 15-year-old kids' copy of what was what I liked. So, you know, you'd hear Sid Barrett doing uh, Arnold Lane, so I'd write Alistair Jones, you know, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I listened to David Ackles and I was listening to his lyrics and I thought, blimey, this guy is... He he can be really savage and brutal and still make it sound poetic and pretty, you know. And it was really clever. And I was like, wow, that's that's really good because his lyrics are kind of really disturbing and dark. And yet he sounds really pretty. I mean, he's a bit vaudeville and he's a bit piano and Jack Brel a bit, you know. But I hadn't heard all those. And I, I heard him first. He was on TV. I saw him do a, an in concert or a Colour Me Pop or something. And he was playing on television and I thought it was, it was great. So I got his first album and loved it, and I've stu- I stuck with him. Again, he only did four albums, uh, but this is off his third album, and it turns out that Elton John played his first gig in the USA at the, uh, I think it was the Whiskey A Go-Go. He did his debut in the States, and he was playing with David Ackles there. David Ackles was the support act. Oh. And Elton John is a huge David Ackles fan. In fact, there's a little footage of him and Elvis Costello covering a David Ackles song on YouTube, you know, because both of them really rate David Ackles. So Elton John was clearly, you know, he's always been a fan. And when I saw that he played at the whiskey with David Ackles, I went, yeah, that makes sense, you know. So when he did his third album, he went over to England, with, was brought over really by Elton John and Bernie Taupin. So they were kind of behind it. So, yeah, third album, is it my favourite? No, I don't think it is. American Gothic's the third David Ackles album. I think my favourite's Subway to the Country, which is the second one, but it's got Waiting for the Moving Van on it, the third one, and it's a track that can, will always bring a tear to the eye and a lump to the throat. It's uh, just such a beautiful song, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great... I mean, all three of his Electra albums are, are just, I think, you know, absolute essential albums, you know. But the fourth one, Five and Dime... It's it's not as good, I don't think, you know, but it's still good, you know. But that was it. And then he stopped doing music and became a, a script writer, I think, for television and stuff. And got he, he died as a result of a hit-and-run accident. And it took a bit of time. I think he got hit. It was, the accident happened and he died a couple of years later, you know, if I've got it right. But I know he, I know he had a hit-and-run accident. And, and it was really, you know, real, yeah, real loss because he was he was so good. Standing on the front porch Of the old frame house in town In another day or two It all starts coming down I wonder what they'll do About the oak tree with the swing I never built the tree house But I had plans For so many things I am trying not to think of While I can 
waiting for the moving van to come. The front door has that noisy hinge I never did repair. You used to hear it late at night and meet me on the stairs. Well, I work the daylight now. I'm always home by six. Now there's lots of time and nothing left to fix except the things I am trying not to think of while I can. Waiting for the moving van to come. It's almost summer here Your favorite time of year Hey, didn't we love to hear the children play We had some happy times Ten years is so much time You'd think we both could find a way No, I won't get maudlin It's just being here alone It took some getting used to But I like it on my own I just wish they'd get here soon I have so much work to do Plans to make And a whole new life to think about But you, I am trying not to think of while I can, waiting for the moving van to come. So now I had to finish with uh, one of your tracks nick and again bevis from um we have kind of he'd be a diamond here from uh new riverhead from 1990 that's was, right. was that a period where it was um you're still doing a lot of things on your own but yeah. you're bringing in some friends to kind of augment things well that yeah yeah that one was um recorded almost entirely with me and martin crowley on drums god rest his soul because he he died very young poor old martin yeah, that was me and Martin together doing that. He, I played kind of bass and guitar and keyboards and vocals, and he did all the drumming on it. And we went into Gold Dust Studios in Bromley and did it down there. Yeah, again, you know, it was just a, the next one on the conveyor belt, really. And it's the one that a lot of people kind of see as, oh, that's the one, that's the important one, you know, which kind of means I haven't done anything good for 30 years, really, you know. But, which, but you know, I'll take it. They like it. And that, that song's been covered. I chose that one because it's probably my greatest or one of my two greatest hits although i didn't do either of them you know but they've been the ones that have been covered the most mm. he'd be a diamond and lights are changing i would think are the two smash hits i've had 
I don't know if all of it, but certainly a, a lot of your material is uh, on Bandcamp. Yeah, it is, yeah. But I mean, not, not that it's anything to do with me. I, I was told by my mate Mark Burgess, who runs the flashback shops in London, second-hand record shops in London, mm. and, and new stuff. Uh, he's a mate of mine for many years, old Mark. and I, He plays football on a Thursday with us. But Mark was telling me that I should get with it and put my stuff online because it's a good thing to do. And I mean, I've, I'm like an old Luddite. I've gotten... I've, totally useless with computers and stuff. I'm not interested, really, you know. I said, yeah, I suppose I should, really. But he said, no, 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 do it, do it. And I said, well, look, you do it, and you can have some of the money, you know. So he did. So that's all Mark's fault. Lovely. Yeah, I, I wish you all the best with um, the Fruits de Mer all day uh, in, in August. And Yeah, that should be yeah. fun. You know, we've played it, um, oh, what, how many times have we done it? At least twice. It might be three times, but I think it's twice we've done it. And it's always fun. It's always good. Not, usually we play on the Saturday night. This time we're playing on the Sunday night because our drummer, Mr. Dave Pierce, has got a gig with another band on the Saturday night. You have featured on a few uh, Fruits, Fruits de Mer releases over the, over the years as well. I have, yes, I have. Keith kind of gets in touch with me from you know every so often and goes, would you like to contribute a track to this and or whatever? And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't because it kind of depends what, what they mm. what they're doing, you know. Some of the things I go, oh yeah, I like that, and other things I go, you know, I don't really care about that. So I haven't got anything I can give you, you know. Mm. But it's yeah, yeah. I'm always happy to give tracks to people. It's not that wouldn't be why, you know. Oh, I'm not giving it to him because I expect to. It's nothing like that. It be because the project isn't one that particularly appeals. But it links into what we were talking about in relation to sort of miasma, which was kind of the, you know, having something there in vinyl in your hand. Yeah. I do like that. I do like a bit of, you know, all this downloading stuff. I mean, I, I can see it. I can see it's quite useful to have, have a load of records on your, or music on your telephone and you can listen to them on headphones while people are talking to you and be totally antisocial. I get that. You know, that's cool. And you can take long journeys and stuff. I get all that. You know, and CDs are good for the car and all that crap. But, but basically, I want, I want something. I don't want to download I don't want to leave my download connection to my kids. Here you are, darling. Have my downloads. You know, what are they going to do with them? I mean, it, I, I want something that I can hold, you know, that I can look at and I can open up the gatefold sleeve and take the lyric sheet out and look at it and it looks brilliant. And I, often when I was a kid, I'd go in a record shop and just look at the sleeve and go, whoa, that looks good. They've got three guitarists with long hair. I love it. I bought Mad River because the cover looked good. You can't buy a record because the download looks good hmm. i know i'm just hmm. an old git they're not but you know they're not aiming at 66 year old gentlemen are they when they're pushing all this twaddle you know hmm. Hmm. they're not aiming at me you know so I, I wouldn't want it it's like you know i never thought i'd turn into my dad but you know i listen to kind of whatever's going on at the moment and listen to it go oh, bloody oh, it's awful just like him you know hmm. except i'm right and he's wrong hmm. let's end with he'd be a, a diamond and uh enjoy Enjoy more uh, Bevis Frond and uh, look forward to your forthcoming shows. Okay, well, thank you very much for taking the interest. Okay, Jason? No, it's my pleasure. Cheers, Nick. Okay, mate. Cheers. Take care. Bye.
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's been almost 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.